as I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We will uh, pick up where we left off last week, looking at Matthew 24, and we'll begin at verse 36 and then read through chapter 25, verse 13. And let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go yourself to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, last week we looked at uh, what, what is, I think, just undoubtedly, it's one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. It's what's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain that overlooks the, the temple complex, the, the, the eighth wonder of the ancient world. Beautiful view, you can imagine, as we're looking over the temple. And Jesus tells us of the signs that indicate we are in the last days. Right now, we are in the last days. And here are things that will transpire before he comes again to establish his kingdom visibly and fully in the new creation, while also telling us about the destruction of Jerusalem and about the destruction of the temple that would happen just a few years later. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it's about maybe 40 years, 30 to 40 years after Jesus says these words, that is a preview, that is a microcosm uh, that, that tells us what the end times judgment will feel like, what it will look like. Oh, that's a tough passage. It's a really hard passage. I know not every answer maybe feels sufficiently answered, and I'm telling you it's okay to wrestle with that tension. Um, I, I'm sitting there with you to some extent as well. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a terribly challenging passage. 
But let me insist right now that this is a week where we feel the reality of Matthew 24. What are the signs we're in the last days? And Jesus says, basically, open your eyes. What are the signs that we're in the last days? Just, just open your eyes. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There are always wars and rumors of wars. This week we've seen heroin pictures come from Afghanistan, heartbreaking images of those willing to do anything to leave their own country. As Christians, we are reminded of the courage and faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are left in, in Afghanistan, anticipating or maybe experiencing persecution as the Taliban resumes control. Like what models for us, right? Like they need our prayers. We in the affluent West need to give them our material support. But boy, do we need them, don't we? Because maybe the greatest tragedy for us, the, the hardship, and it's embarrassing to say it out loud, but man, it's hard to seek first the kingdom of God in this culture, isn't it? If we're being honest, it's hard to seek first the kingdom of God. And so they tell us what it looks like. They show us what that means. There are famines, there are real famines, like, like literal famines. The coronavirus certainly, I think, counts as a famine. There will be earthquakes. Haiti has been devastated. 2,000 dead, 10,000 injured, the last I looked at the numbers. It's overwhelming. Uh, and, and this thought is not original to me. Uh, I've seen it many places, but we were never intended to receive this much tragedy, this much pain, and this much injustice. We, were, we weren't created to experience any of it, but even after the fall, we were only intended to take in as much tragedy and injustice and disaster as our village had. Maybe the neighboring village, but not the entire globe. And yet at the same time, maybe the perspective that we do have, which is a pretty unique perspective in history, is that we are so reminded that we need a global Christ, we need a global return of Christ, and we need a global kingdom to meet this world and all of its needs. It's been a Matthew 24 kind of week, and if we're paying attention, they all are. They are all Matthew 24 weeks. Last week, Jesus' message was, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Every time a rocket is launched, every time the earth shakes beneath your feet, don't look to the clouds. These are the birth pains, and one day those birth pains will result in the birth of a new creation when Jesus returns. This week, we're looking at the second important instruction from Jesus about living in the last days. And this is so important because that first instruction can be misconstrued. Don't be alarmed can be misinterpreted. Don't be alarmed can quickly become, you don't need to care. Don't be alarmed can quickly become desensitized to the tribulation in the world. Don't be alarmed also needs Jesus' instruction, stay awake. I mean, you hear how perfectly they complement each other, right? Don't be alarmed, but don't become indifferent. Don't be alarmed, but don't be complacent. Don't be alarmed, but pay attention. Don't forget the destiny of this world, which is your destiny too, that you will stand before King Jesus. And that has to shape how we live here and now. And so this morning, uh, we'll continue to look at Jesus' message about the last days. And, and what we'll see, our three points today, are here are three threats to all of us as we are called to pay attention. Three threats to paying attention. Threats to remembering and living as if one day we will stand before God. Threats to remembering that all of this world will pass away. Threats to remember that Jesus is coming to transform this broken, sin-cursed world into his glorious kingdom. Threats that take us away from those realities. And what are those threats? 
I think most of us know these threats pretty well. Distraction, disbelief, and discouragement. Distraction, disbelief, and discouragement. Those are the threats. So let's dive in. The first threat to staying awake is distraction. What can keep us from living in a way where we live as if our lives uh, are not before the face of God? Uh, What can keep us from living as if judgment is not coming, that that Jesus uh, will return at any moment? He could return at any moment. What threatens those realities? And and one of them is that we're we're just distracted. And Jesus highlights two ways that we can be distracted. We can be uh, spiritually misguided, and we can be spiritually empty. And those are two ways of being distracted. So what does it mean to be spiritually misguided? Look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then verse 43, Jesus elaborates on this idea. Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, I I keep insisting, yes, this is the hardest passage in, in the New Testament. This is the hardest passage that Jesus ever Um, spoke and yet this is the clearest part of it (laughs) this is the clearest instruction from it when is jesus coming back no one knows as much as jesus's return will be awesome and obvious that's what we saw last week like all of the heavens will just be illuminated lightning all over there will be no mistake that jesus is coming back as obvious as his return will be it will be just as unexpected Nobody knows. And so the first instruction I think that we can read between the lines is don't be distracted with misguided spirituality. Big picture. This means that we can be discontent. We can be unsatisfied with a life that is shaped by faith, hope, and love. Just to use those Christian virtues that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. right? So instead of faith, we demand to see. We need to have it now. We've got to be able to see it. Faith isn't enough. Instead of hope, we need our, 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 all of our satisfaction gratified immediately. Uh, the Lord is our portion, that's fair enough, but I need my portion filled now. Love. Instead of how, I, how can I serve my neighbor, it's I've come to be served. It's, it's the inverted way of Jesus. The example Jesus gives us here is being discontent with the life of faith that we're given. Case in point, it is remarkable how many times in history... People in the name of Jesus have predicted the end of the world when Jesus says explicitly, no one knows. All the way back in the second century, there was a pastor that said he is coming back in the year 500 based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark, wherever he got that from. One medieval pope said Islam was founded in 618, which really isn't true either, but add 666 to that, Jesus is coming back in 1284. William Miller, a huge religious personality in this country, uh, he he led one of his groups would be the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, and and there are lots of kind of Millerite organizations or or bodies that came from him. Um, He was certain it was either 1843 or 1844. Harold Camping predicted on May 21st, 2011, that Jesus would come back. That date passed. He said he miscalculated. It was October 21st, 2011. And if you think I'm making fun of them, I'm not, because this also comes into our circles. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said that Jesus is coming back in 1530 because, quote, all is fulfilled. And they're all misguided. It's not don't be surprised at Jesus' return. It's you will be surprised. 
Jesus says, no one, not even the angels nor the Son of Man. Like, do we presume to know more than the perfect celestial beings who minister at God's throne day and night? Do we presume to know more than them? Do we presume to know more than Jesus in his humble incarnate state? Because if Jesus truly was fully human, that means he was limited in really important ways because to be human is to be limited. If he endured no human, human limitations, if his body could be everywhere at once, was he truly human? If Jesus could know things uh, like, like, like that were, were foretelling the future in himself by his own ability, would he truly be human? So most theologians say, well, no. He, he, he laid aside those attributes because he wouldn't be fully human if he didn't have those limits. Now, does Jesus know now? And I tend to think, yes, he does. Philippians 2 says he, he's now exalted. He receives the name above every name. And in his exalted state, I'm, 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 he probably knows. But it's not really given to us. Furthermore, Jesus says he's like a burglar. A burglar doesn't announce and let everyone know the time of his arrival, right? If, if a burglar uh, gave you a window and said, I'm coming to rob your house, and let's presume this is a nonviolent robbery, uh, you would stay home and turn the lights on. But Jesus says, no, no one knows. Misguided spirituality is a discontentment with what God has revealed. One of the great passages in all of the Bible on this idea is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are for you and your children forever. I love the, the, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. What more can he say than to you he has said? What else are you looking for? Whenever someone knows something the rest of us don't know, you are probably in the realm of false teaching. Because in the Christian faith, there is nothing hidden and there is nothing secret. You are baptized into the same reality that you will die in. And every moment in between is just exploring those truths and what they mean for you. A good illustration I've heard is, is that uh, being a, a Christian is receiving the inheritance to a mansion. The whole mansion is yours. Just start exploring it. But there's nothing secret. Just open the rooms. Everything you are baptized into, you will die into. Anything else distracts us from this reality. And so you can be distracted when you're spiritually misguided. And of course, we all know this, you can be distracted if you're spiritually empty. For spiritual emptiness, Jesus gives us the example of Noah's day. Now, we know from the book of Genesis that Noah's contemporary, yeah, contemporaries, they were exceedingly wicked, right? They were, they were evil, which is why judgment came to them. But notice that's not even where Jesus goes, right? Jesus just picks up on normal life. He says they were marrying and they were eating and drinking, but they were unaware of the judgment that came. The problem at this point is that they are just too distracted with life to remember and live as if judgment were coming. You have the examples of the workers in the field and those grinding at the mill. Work is good. There's nothing wrong with work, but it can't distract you completely from the greater reality and story of your life before God. You and I are creatures created to glorify and love and enjoy our creator. Think of Jesus' parable of the sower. Uh, I think the most alarming illustration in that parable is when Jesus says you have the seed that took root, it grew, and then it was choked by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. We all know what the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches feel like. And the moment we can, we can, we can know, we can, we can acknowledge the world, we are told that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are everything. And that we can find our enough in them. Francis Schaeffer, the Presbyterian pastor in the 20th century, he says, you know, Christians are pretty good with, uh, with, with 
with, with denying Marxist materialism and Darwinian materialism, but we get that third materialism that we struggle with. And he said, too many of us live ash heap lives. We spend most of our time and money on things that will end up in the city dump. You can be busy working, you can be busy entertaining, but either way, you can be unprepared just like Noah's neighbors. Don't make the same mistake. As the commentator R.T. France puts it, the implication is that it is possible to prepare for the coming of Jesus, not by calculating dates, but by a life of constant readiness in response to God's word. This world will not always be, and and all of this world, and all of the stuff of this world, and so much of what we spend our time focused on, setting our hopes on, being disappointed by, it's all passing away. At the beginning of the year, we were in Ecclesiastes, right, where the preacher says, all is vapor, all is a mist, All, all of those things that we grasp for are ultimately going to dissipate and escape us. Here is the second part of that same message, which is that Jesus is coming back, and he's bringing a kingdom that is stable and solid and lasting. First threat is distraction. I know that threat. The second threat is disbelief. You just don't really believe that Jesus is going to come back. And so naturally, why would you act like it? This is true in the Noah story. They watch Noah prepare the ark and they scoff. They don't live their lives as if judgment is coming. There is disbelief in the judgment of God. And that plagued Noah's contemporaries. Now, the two parables that, that, that follow this example from Jesus in our passage, they speak to this disbelief in the judgment of God. You have the parable of the ten virgins, and we'll get to that one in just a second. But first, we have this much smaller story of the faithful and wicked servant. Now, this is a pretty familiar story if you've ever worked. If you've ever had a job, you know this story. Uh, what are you like when the boss is away? When the boss says, all right, I'm gone for the day, we, we know those temptations, don't we? You, you, you maybe you're tempted to slack off. You're, you're tempted to not act as if you are accountable When I was about 17 years old, I got what was at the time my dream job. I got a job at Hollywood Video. Remember Hollywood Video, right? It was the the rival of Blockbuster. I made my seven bucks an hour, but who cares about that? I got free movie rentals by working at Hollywood Video. My dream job. The problem was it was the Wild West. Day two of the job, that employee privilege was taken because it was the parable of the wicked video store tenants. Everybody took hordes of movies with them back home, all of my co-workers. So the boss came, and what happened? Judgment came. Judgment came. That was no longer my dream job. Like, we all know this. We all know what this parable is speaking to. In verse 46, blessed is that servant who basically just does what he's supposed to do. So when the master comes, the master sees that. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's looking over the house. Blessed is the servant because he's doing his job. He's doing what he was hired to do. He's doing it as if he will be accountable to his master one day. On the other hand, you have the wicked servant in verse 48. He says, the master is delayed. This is great. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and he eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot here. It seems really dramatic, doesn't it? Why is the wicked servant not just slacking off? Why is he beating his servants? Why all of this violence? I think it's because the servant is acting like he's the Lord. This is ultimately an abuse of power. He's acting as the Lord over others. Uh, If there is no master, then maybe some servants will act like they are the master. 
He perverts the authority that he has. And the example is extreme because if the master is out of the picture, theoretically, who is to limit the servant's wicked behavior? It reminds me of the, the famous line from Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov, which I have not read. But without God, everything is permitted. Without God, everything is permitted. If the boss is not coming back, the servant does what he pleases. The problem for the wicked servant is that the master does exist and judgment is coming. The problem is that the master will show up at a time the wicked servant does not know and justice will then be accomplished. The second illustration, that's the easy one. The second illustration is Matthew 25 and the parable of the ten virgins. What makes this parable hard to understand is the cultural context, right? We're trying to piece together what exactly is the wedding scenario because it's so much different than our weddings. We have ten virgins. I think that's a terrible translation. It's ten bridesmaids. Uh, the word there is just ten unmarried girls. That's who they are. And so taking our cultural context, they're ten bridesmaids. But they don't do what our bridesmaids do. They don't tend to the bride. They don't help the bride get ready for her wedding. Instead, piecing this story that Jesus is, is telling us, they are attending the groom. And what they're supposed to do is lead this groom in procession to his bride. I think what this is, is, is an ancient Near Eastern wedding wasn't just one day, but it would happen over sequential nights. And so I think every single night the bridesmaids were to lead the groom in this kind of ceremonial partying celebration back to the party where the bride waits for her. And every time it's reenacted and everybody celebrates and everybody is joyous. The problem is that if he comes in the middle of the night, keep in mind there are no streetlights at the time, they need lamps, they need torches. They are lighting the way for the groom to get to his bride, bringing bride and groom together. As the delay continues, darkness falls, they get drowsy and sleep. There's nothing wrong with sleeping. Both the wise bridesmaids sleep and the foolish bridesmaids sleep. And maybe this means that even being ready doesn't mean that we can be consumed with it because we have ordinary lives to live as well. And I think that message is here. It's okay to get tired and sleep. But when the call comes, are you ready? We can't live our life on constant alert. Remember Jesus' first instruction, don't be alarmed. The problem is that the foolish bridesmaids didn't pack enough oil for their torches. They aren't prepared to receive the groom. The oil symbolizes readiness. And the foolish bridesmaids just aren't prepared. Maybe the foolish bridesmaids, if, if you would have asked them if they thought the groom was coming, they would have said, of course, but they didn't act like it. The application for us is simple and direct. Do you know and act like Jesus is coming back? If you don't believe in Jesus, he's coming. <laughs> Repent and believe the gospel because judgment is coming. All of the wrongs, evils, sins of this world, which includes all of ours, all of our selfishness, all of our vindictiveness, all of our judgmentalism, all of our resentment, all of our bitterness, all of our anger, we all can relate to those. We all contribute to this bonfire of brokenness and sin that the world has. All of that will be exposed before God. Repent means turning from trusting in your own goodness to turning and putting your hope and trust uh, in, in Jesus and his goodness. Believe the gospel. Look to Jesus who died for sinners who cannot save themselves and who know they will never be good enough, never be righteous enough. Look to Jesus who rose again from the dead. If you trust in Christ right now, this is a reminder that everything must be seen through the lens and perspective of his coming. What does the shortness of your life, this is a brief life, what does the transience of this world, the coming of Jesus and his kingdom, what does that mean for you? 
What does it mean for what you set your heart on? What does it mean for what you value? What does it mean for how you spend your time, how you spend your money? This is a word for us because it's often hard to believe that Jesus will return, right? 2,000 years later, and yet what are these stories emphasizing? Delay. Like not obvious delay, but in all of these stories, it's delay to the point that people are adjusting their behavior. That's how long the delay is in these stories, and that's the delay that we're in. And we get so discouraged, but Jesus tells us that's exactly the case. Why the delay? Because God is not in a rush to bring judgment. God is not in a rush to bring judgment. Why not? Because he has this compassion for the lost. The greatest temptation is that that the delay means God doesn't care. The temptation uh, that there is no judgment, that there is no meaning to life, and so we can just carry on. And and many will take the opportunity to act as their own parodies of the Lord over others. But as we looked at last week, delay doesn't mean indifference, it means patience. Delay is God's compassion in bringing sinners to life. This is not the time for us to get bored. It's not the time to to just move on. It's it's to love others out of a love that we have received from God. The God who's so patient with us. It's to announce that the bridegroom is coming in this world of sin, rebellion, suffering, and trials. And that is the best news that there is. We're threatened by distraction, disbelief, and then finally discouragement. We may not lose faith that Jesus will return to make all things right again. We may not stave off, or we may be able to stave off distraction, but it's also really easy to get discouraged. How do we fight discouragement? And we'll close here and really hone in on this parable of the ten bridesmaids. This passage reminds us that our calling is to live by God's word with our joy set on Christ. To live by God's word with our joy set on Christ. Remember, Jesus distinguishes the bridesmaids not between prepared and unprepared, but between wise and foolish. So what makes someone foolish or wise? And if you take the rest of the Bible into perspective, and and if you take Jesus' words about wisdom, like Matthew 7, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Well, what does that mean? He hears the word and he does it. He hears the word and he does it. Another way of of, of thinking about this is that to, to live by our ears and not by our eyes is the way of wisdom. To hear the word and do it hear the word, to live by our ears, not our eyes. The wise bridesmaids live by God's word, so to speak, and and even as they wait, even what their eyes are telling them, which is like, is he even coming, because it just keeps getting later, and it just keeps getting darker, they know it will not always be this way. The foolish bridesmaids go to the wedding thinking it will always be this way. They're ill-prepared. They are not prepared for the arrival of the bridegroom because they aren't looking for the future, But the wise simply live as if he is coming, as if his word is true. And when the night keeps getting later and and, and the air gets darker and the groom is delayed, the foolish are found out as ill-prepared. Not having oil, right, is a disaster. It feels like the best man for getting the ring at the wedding. And the foolish bridesmaids realize, oh no, we've made a mistake. And they ask the wise bridesmaids, will you share oil with us? And, And the wise bridesmaids say, no, because there won't be enough. So go buy your own, and of course, when the foolish go off to buy their oil, that's when the groom comes, and when they go later to get into the wedding, they are denied entrance. Now, this sounds harsh, but let's think about the story being told. This is not about sharing our resources with those who don't have enough. Not about that at all. It is still true that God gives us much so that we can be generous. That is true. 
It's also not true that there are times, or it is true that there are times, uh, of course, when God calls us to be gracious and giving and kind, even to those who drive us nuts. That's also still true. But what would happen if the bridesmaids shared their oil? They would run out of light. Think of camping and how dark it gets. It's that dark. So they would make it halfway back to the wedding, and all of a sudden they would be lost in the darkness. They would not have done their job. They would not have honored the groom and his waiting bride. And so the message here is that we need to live by the word to remember what God says about us and about our world, that that's true and and that the future is sure. And we need this word, especially in the darkness. I mean, think of the words of the psalmist because they're our words. They belong to us in this time of delay where we find ourselves waiting in the darkness. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope, living by the ear, not the eye. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Why does he repeat that last line? Is he giving himself a pep talk? I really want to believe this, so I'm going to say it again. More than watchmen for the morning, I wait. The message, friends, is that God is with us even as we find ourselves in the night watch. Hope in his word. God is so with us even when we're in the night watch. And this strange parable also helps us to remember our calling because it's perfectly aligned with where we seek joy. Because the whole point of the story is not get in line for the judgment, right? The point of the story is get in line for the celebration. Get in line for the wedding. The whole point is we are waiting to go to this wonderful, awesome party. It's a wedding. What must we be prepared for? The groom is coming and we're going to the feast. So if this morning you are discouraged, if you are weary, if you're tired, if you are cold, if you are dry... Would you remember your salvation and the joy that is set before you? The groom is coming and we're on the way to celebration. If you're distracted, if you're, if you're struggling to believe, if you're frustrated, if you feel overwhelmed with guilt and with shame, don't forget that the groom is coming and the groom is coming with an even better wedding story than the one that Jesus told. It's the one that he did. It's the one where he descended into the darkness with no procession and with no friends and no disciples, no bridesmaids. And he did it because he flipped the wedding script. You and I are still waiting for the groom to come, but we're not the bridesmaids, we're the bride. And mercifully, gloriously, he cleans us up. He dresses us in his finest robes, which are his spotless garments. And he presents us for himself in splendor, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. And so the wise in this better story aren't just the ones who hold on to his word in the darkness. The wise in this story are those who hold on to Christ. To be prepared is to remember a love that the world has never known. To remember the grace that you have received. To remember that all of the things this world prizes and values and boasts in are rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And it's a hard world. And not everything makes sense in him right now. There are no simple answers in the delay. There are no simple answers in the darkness. We can so easily be discouraged by our situations, by what we see in the world. And yet in Christ, there are shoulders big enough to handle all of the sorrows of this world. And here's what's insane. There are also shoulders small enough to bear the weight of our sins as he was hung on the cross. 
The same Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to make all things new. Every tear wiped away. Peace and justice have the last word only because Jesus has the last word. At the end of the day, that's what Matthew 24 means for us. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We, we are a people oh, so easily distracted, so easily not believing these, these truths, not believing that, Lord, you could come back at any moment and... Uh, Man, who would argue if you decided to come back now? Lord, we long for the beauty and glory of your kingdom. We long for evil to be eradicated. We long for sin to be no more. We long for this, this, even this, this meal that we're about to have with just this little cup of wine and this, this little piece of bread. We long for a meal that is the wedding supper of the Lamb. But in the meantime, Lord, would you minister to us in the delay? Would you minister to us in the darkness? Lord, would we be encouraged by the, by, as, as people who live by the ear, not the eye? And as people who know that the joy that our hearts long for, that joy is ultimately satisfied in you. Lord, help us to be those kinds of people. Help us to be those who more than watchmen wait for the morning, to be those people who wait for you. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.